for the sake of time, we're going to be spending most of our time in Luke chapter 2 this morning, and we'll be referring back to Matthew chapter 2. Our brother Stu Green last week uh, was in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, and, and he, we got most of the account of Matthew, so we want to spend some time in the, the account of our Lord's uh, coming in the gospel of Luke. So Luke chapter 2. And we're going to begin reading at verse 39. Luke chapter 2, verse 39. All right, so I'll wait for the rustling of pages to stop. And if you have one of the electronic, you know, devices, I'll wait till you find it, which should be relatively easy. All right, here we go. Luke chapter 2, verse 39. And so when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord... They returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem, according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the days As they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and Mary did not know it. But supposing that he had been with the company that went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them. And asking questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? For they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with, uh, with them and came to Nazareth. And he was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and with men. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. So as we begin the series of the life of Christ, we come to these four beautiful Gospels. And if we look at, at, at Scripture in its entirety, the Old Testament, as wonderful as it is, it's always pointing forward to a future event. And it's this very event that it points to. And so the, the four Gospel writers, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, write their account with very specific purposes. And, and one of the main purposes that, that, that they write these accounts for is that we may know who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And so last week, our brother Stu had us in Matthew chapter 1, and, and at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, we had that genealogy, did we not? And it began, Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham, and so forth. And, and what did that show us? That Jesus was the son of David, that he was of the line of David, that he 
being the Messiah, had the right to rule as king of the Jews. And so Matthew, as was mentioned last week, portrays Christ as the king. Luke takes a slightly different approach. Luke portrays him not as king, but portrays him as the son of man. And you may say, well, why do you say that? How do you know? Well, remember Matthew chapter 1? It began the genealogy, Jesus, son of David. Started with kingship, right? Now, if you look in, uh, in Luke chapter 1, I'm sorry, not Luke chapter 1. Here we go. In Luke chapter 4, Luke gives us a genealogy. Okay? Luke gives us a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 3, I'm sorry, verse 23, it says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry about the age of 30, uh, being the son of Joseph, son of Heliel, and he begins to list the genealogy. I don't, we don't have time to read it all, but look where he ends. Verse 38. Son of Enosh, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Right? So, so here Luke is portraying Jesus as the son of man in his humanity. And Luke, very specifically in chapter 1, when he begins to pen, listen, he's writing to a man called Theophilus, and he says, listen, I've studied the accounts. I've interviewed everybody. I've taken close, uh, 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 very close and detailed notes. And I've decided to put it all together. That you may be, and he says this word, certain. Certain. Certain about what? Who Jesus is. And what he did. And so in these beginning parts of the both gospels, we have the beginning life of Christ. And we have witnesses of who Jesus is. We first started in Matthew with the genealogy that he is the king. He is the king of the Jews. He's the rightful heir, son of David, to rule over the throne of David forever. And and we have other accounts in it, right? And we have other witnesses in that story, which we'll allude to. In Matthew, we have witnesses as well. I'm sorry, in Luke, I misspoke. In Luke, we have witnesses as well. It starts, it doesn't start with a genealogy. It starts with an old priest named Zacharias and his wife, Elizabeth. And here he is in the temple and and an angel appears to him and says, you're going to have a son. And he says, well, I'm too old. What are you talking about? And Zachariah will witness to the fact that this child that Mary is pregnant with is the son of God. Elizabeth will attest to you, to you that Jesus is the son of God. Mary, the mother of Jesus, will attest to you in the book of Luke that Jesus is the son of God. The angel Gabriel will attest to you that Jesus is the son of God. Do you see a pattern here? You see a pattern, right? These stories, these witnesses in these books are to teach you or to tell you and to show you that he is the son of God. And so this morning we have you in this one account. And it's a unique account. And it's a unique account in any ways because we've heard from, from old priests. We've heard from, from the women. We've heard from uh, uh, angels. We've heard from shepherds giving an account. We've heard from, a, from an old man named Simeon uh, and an old widow named Anna concerning the Christ. All these people are proclaiming and witnessing to the fact that this baby is the Son of God. But here in this section, 
It's unique in that. It's not someone else bearing witness of who he is. But it is Jesus himself declaring who he is. So this morning, what is the topic? Who is the Christ? You're with me so far. Praise the Lord. I haven't lost anybody yet. All right. Verse 39. There's some uh, administrative things we need to do with verse 39 here. It says, And so when they were, when they had performed all these things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. Now listen, different men relay the story in different ways and add or, or, or give us different information. The account of Matthew and the account of Luke are unique in these, this part of the story. And Luke, as he writes this, he, he goes on this on the story with Zacharias and Elizabeth and, and John the Baptist and, and Mary and, the, and, 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 the, and the, the shepherds and so forth. And we have this beautiful picture of the nativity in the book of Luke. But Matthew gives us detail that Luke doesn't. And here we read, Luke, Luke just pens it a sense, so when they had performed all the things uh, concerning the law, according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. But if we had time, we would turn to Matthew chapter 2 and we read that, that after Mary had performed what was required of her, after 40 days after having a child, she was to go and before the, the temple and provide an offering for her, sanctifi- her, her consecration. And at the same time, she was also supposed to present the Lord. And that's in Luke chapter 2. But Matthew steps in and says, well, they were there for a while. And these wise men or, or magi from the east came. And then we have this little little story on the side where we heard, we read that these these magi from the from from Persia would come to Herod. And Herod at this time in this age was old and withered and was at the end of his career. And here are these Persian men, these magi, who according to historians were what they called kingmakers. They trained the Persian princes and, and they went through their school. And when the, when, the, when the young men were ready, they were made kings. These Persian magi came to Herod and said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? You guys remember the story. And it says that Herod was troubled. Not only was he troubled, but all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. You know, Herod is, is, a, is a despicable, despicable character in this whole story. Here the Magi come to him and ask to see the king of the Jews who was born. And he knew, he knew, by the way, Herod was not a Jew. Herod was an Edomite. But he knew enough of the Old Testament to know what he, they were referring to. For when he goes and he gathers all the priests and all the scribes together and huddles them together and say, Guys, where is the Christ to be born? Now, I want you to notice, he didn't say, where was the king of the Jews to be born? He said, where is the Christ? You see the difference? The Magi are looking for the king of the Jews. They, the, the amount of truth and revelation they have is limited. But here is this man who understood the implications and said, where is he who is born? King of the Jews is the Messiah. And he gets the scribes and the priests together and says, where is the Christ to be born? And so here the scribes, the scholars, they, they flip through their, their mind of prophets and find Micah and said, oh, I found it. Oh, he used to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And we read the heart of this man. You know, it, there's a verse in the Psalms that says that God causes the wrath 
of men to praise him. He causes the wrath of men to praise him. Here is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, coming to this earth. And angels proclaim his name. The widows cry out his name. The shepherds declare his name. And word comes to the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're silent. Word comes to Herod, and he gets the he, he gathers the wise men together, and he says, listen, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Go, go look for him. And when you find him, come tell me. Also, when did you see that star? When did you start seeing it? He was curious. In his heart, he had a different plot. And we all know the story. The, 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 the wise man, the magi went and they gathered together and they found him. The star appeared again, appeared before them and they were exceedingly rejoiceful. They had seen the star. They came to Herod looking for him. And now they're in Bethlehem looking for this child. Which one is he? And it says that the star appeared above the child. And when they came, they saw the, they saw the star. They were exceedingly joyful. They came and they saw the child and his mother. And they worshipped him. But God, in his providence, protected that child, knowing what Herod's heart. What does Herod do? Well, Herod never wanted to worship the Messiah. Herod never wanted to worship the one who has the rightful claim to the throne. All he cared about was his himself. And we have the, the witness of the wise men. And here Herod, in his in his selfish ambition. What does he do? In his anger. He commands that all two-year-old boys down be murdered. In Bethlehem, in all its regions. And you may say, well, how does that witness to us that Jesus is the Christ? Well, it's quite simple. If he was just any old, any little kid, who's just any little boy. Why was Herod so worried about him? Why would Herod command to, his soldiers to, to commit such murder, such genocide, if not because he was the king of the Jews? And the Lord would, pro, would provide for Mary and Joseph, and Joseph would be told by an angel in a dream to leave, to flee, to go to Egypt. And, and, and that night he would wake up his wife and wake up a child, a very small child, and travel to Egypt by night to flee. And we have these beautiful pictures of witnesses that tell us that this baby is the Son of God. And I say all this, and, and, and I know I'm, I'm belaboring a point, but I say all this, that all these are external witnesses. And here in this account we have the witness. Of Jesus himself. And so between verse 39. You have 12 years that occurred. 12 years. Think about that. We read the. We, we, I just told you the account in Matthew right. He was born in Bethlehem. He remained there for a while. Uh, the, the Magi came. The Magi left. The Lord warned Joseph. Joseph left with Mary. And went to Egypt. There were probably in Egypt scholars believe maybe a couple months. Herod was at the end of his, of his life. Herod passed away. The angel came back to him and said, go back to the land. And he came back to the land. And, and when he came back to the land, he found out his son was, was, was reigning over, 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 over instead of Herod. And 
the Lord warned them, don't go back to Bethlehem. Go, go up to Galilee. And they went up to Galilee and they, they resided in Nazareth, where originally where they were from. And thus Jesus was called the Nazarene. And that's all we know until there's verse 39. We have 12 years go on by. For 12 years, this is what we know about Jesus. That's it. And then, if you go down to skip 51, 51, we read that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. He went with his parents and he left and he was with them in Nazareth. And then from there on, we have 18 years go by. 18 years. We read in chapter 3 how he started his ministry at the age of 30. 18 years. So we have 12 years to verse 39. And at 51, we have 18 plus years. And out of the 30 years of the life of Jesus, the only account or witness that we have is here in this passage. And you may be saying, I'm belaboring the point. It's an important point. If out of all the things that occurred to Jesus Christ in those 30 years... The Spirit only led Luke to write this account. It's a mighty important one, isn't it? It's not just a, a good story for Sunday school. It has great implications, doesn't it? So we read at the age of 12, verse 49, it says that the child grew, became strong, and in, uh, became strong in spirit and filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. And I'll very quickly say this about that verse. You know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of skeptics out there. There's a lot of liberal uh, theology out there who would say that Jesus, uh, that God had sent God the Son and indwelt the little baby. That doesn't make any sense. Some would say that that at his baptism the Spirit dwelt and he became aware that he was Jesus and the Messiah and all this nonsense. No, that's not what the words. That's not what the word says. Jesus was born. I know it's a paradox. I know, I know we, the, the infinite God now in a tiny little baby. The God who knows all things now has to learn to talk. The God who needs nothing now needs to be helped. Those are paradoxes. And, and how do we handle those things? Well, he submitted himself. When Philippians chapter 2 says that, that he emptied himself, he humbled himself, and he put himself in that situation. And Jesus was very much man as you and I were, are, not were. He had all the experiences that you, you, you and I have. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn, he had to learn to read. He had to, he had to learn all these things that you and I struggle with, don't we? But he was different, wasn't he? He was not just any child. He was not just any... Like, think about it. You know, I, as, as, a, as young children, I have young... I had young children. They're not that young anymore. But you, you see the stages of life. And, and, and little toddlers, they, they don't understand much. And, and all they see is, is their desires, right? And so a little toddler sees another toddler with a, with a toy and goes up. And takes it. Right? And, and and these toddlers are victims of their own desires. I don't think Jesus was like that. He was perfect. There was no sin. As, as a young man, I, I imagined he would see the, the, the injustices in his little circles. 
and, and, and this guy over here uh, 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 being mean to everybody else. Or he would see that this guy's stealing from this because he's, or misleading so and so. And he would see the injustice in it all. And, and he was perfect. He was perfect in every way. Listen, it says, when it says, and he grew. Now, parents, you tell your children, listen, you need to eat that broccoli. It's good for you. How many of them listen to you? Oh, they kick and scream, don't they? They fight. Oh, that's green. It's ugly. I want it. No. Listen, Jesus, the Son of God, grew. Grew physically in stature. And he grew in wisdom. And he listened to his parents. And he obeyed his parents. I I imagine he, he would be a perfect specimen in that sense of perfect health. You know, most of us look around and go, wow, obviously I've been hitting the dessert a little too much. But no, not the Lord. He ate what was given to him. He was thankful for what was given to him. He didn't overeat. He didn't under. Anyway, I'm belaboring the point. This child was unique. He was different. He grew. Listen, he grew in stature, but he also was strong in spirit. Listen, filled with wisdom. And, and this is important in the fact that he's 12 years old. He's 12 years old. Listen, which tells me that he was filled with a spirit. I'm sorry, he was strong in the spirit and filled with wisdom, which speaks to the the mind and the intellect of this child. He had to develop his mind. He had to be be filled with it. It's not like he, he turned around and said, I know it all. No, he had to exercise his mind. He had to learn. And he was filled with the wisdom of God. And at the age of 12, just so you know, in Jewish tradition, is right before 13, which is, where most young men have the, their, their bar mitzvah, right? Which is when, when a young man goes from being under their parents to under the law, meaning they are accountable to law. They're, 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 they're gone from a child to a man. And here is Jesus at that, at, that, at that brink, being filled with the wisdom. Now listen, imagine we can think of many geniuses, genius kids in this room. We can think historically many, many children who were geniuses. You think of Amadeus Mozart. Uh, just phenomenal mind. Musically. We, we, there, there's, there's children who are gifted in mathematics. Could you imagine the Lord? The infinite wisdom that the Lord has. I, I imagine whatever the Lord ha- put his hands to do, he would do it to perfection. If he wanted to write a symphony, I'm pretty sure he could have written a symphony. If he wanted to, to, to invest in music, he could have, he could have been a, a phenomenal prodigy. But we don't read any of that. It says that he was filled in spirit and in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. I'm trying to, pick, to paint a picture for you guys here of, of what this young child was like. And so we read... A little bit about his parents. His parents went to Jerusalem every year for the Feast of Passover. Every year for the Feast of Passover. Now, I do want to pause here. First, look at the testimony of Mary and Joseph. Just so you know, um, there is there, there is three feasts that are commanded that the Jews were supposed to partake in. And they were all hosted in Jerusalem. They were supposed to travel there, right? Uh, there's the main one, which is Passover, which is linked... To the unleavened bread, and then, and then, and then uh, uh, fifty days later, there is 
the feast of the first fruits. And then in the fall, there's the feast of the tabernacle. You know, I'm giving you too much information, but here's what it boils down to, right? Those Jews who were devout would go to the feast. Those who, who weren't so devout would go once in a while or not at all. Secondly, it was commanded that the men need to be there. Look at Mary. Mary went with Joseph. It's a sign of her her devoutness to the Lord. They were were true worshipers of the living God, weren't they? you, You think about it. Listen, those who have small children know the difficulty it is to get into a car and travel. The crying, the screaming, the complaining, I mean, it's never-ending. Now imagine if you had to do it on a dirt road, going downhill and uphill with a bunch of kids. But it says Joseph and Mary did it every year. Testimony of Mary and Joseph. Move on. Passover. I want to spend some time on Passover. You know, it's no coincidence that this morning, if you were here for the Lord's Supper, wonderful time. Do you know what the main theme of the Lord's Supper was this morning? The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. And here we have the Passover. And Mary and Joseph are going down to Jerusalem in a big old caravan. Verse verse, uh, uh, 44. Uh, Everybody from Galilee, all the relatives, cousins, neighbors... Uh, you're going, you're going, okay, what time are we all leaving? And they all get together in a big old band. They would all travel south. And, and in Jerusalem, they eventually, after all the feasts were over, they would get together and travel back. Why? Well, there's safety in numbers. And two, hey, listen, we, we just want to have fellowship with one another. It's just a lot more fun when we get together and do things together, right? It's, it's, it's family time, friend time. It's wonderful time. And historian would say that generally in these caravans, you would have... The, 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 the children, the, the older children in, leading the younger children up front, and then the women watching them behind, and the men in the back, so that the whole caravan would walk at the pace of the children, so that nobody would be left behind. And so they traveled down from Galilee, from the mountains of Galilee, down into the valley, uh, the valley of Jordan, and then back up to Jerusalem. And they did this every year, every year. To celebrate the Passover. Now, what's the Passover? We do have to pause and explain what the Passover is. It's a, it's a common term, but what is a Passover? We read about, about Passover. Uh, the Jews are celebrating Passover today. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 there. The, 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 the last plague which the Lord committed upon Egypt, the Lord gave command to the Israelites. Listen, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take a lamb, a baby little lamb, Without any blemish. It can't have a broken leg. It can't have a limp. It it, it can't have any spot on it. Bring it into your house. And I want you to keep it in your house for one week. Seven days. And I want you to watch the lamb. And what are you watching for? Well, making sure that the lamb is spotless. Making sure that it's not sick. Making sure it's not blind. Making sure there's not something wrong with the lamb. Now imagine that. How many of you like little baby lambs? They're the cutest little things. All right, now, now you bring a little baby lamb into your house with a bunch of kids. What do you think is going to happen? Oh, they're going to fall in love with that little lamb. They're going to want to pet the lamb. They're going to want to sleep with the lamb. They're going to want to... Uh, 
For seven days that lamb lived with them. And the Lord said on the seventh day, on the fourteenth day of the first month, the Lord said, you're going to take that lamb at twilight, at night, and you're going to kill that lamb. I imagine it was a very vivid picture of the cost. Well, let me back up. Why did they kill that lamb? Well, the Lord said, listen, I'm coming through. And every firstborn, every firstborn, both of, of men and animal, he's going to destroy. But if you take this lamb and you, and you sacrifice it and you, and you kill it, it will take the place of the firstborn. And you will take this lamb and you will cut its throat and collect its blood in a basin. And you would take hyssop branches and you would apply the blood to the side post of your outside door and the top post. And the children will say, why do we have to kill the lamb? The lamb is taking the place for your brother or your sister. Without the lamb, they're going to die. And it says that night, the Lord would come through. And that last plague of Egypt and the whales of Egypt as the firstborn were all gone. And the Lord says, listen, I want you to remember this for, for perpetuity, for, for all the next generations. You, you, you get together on the 14th day of the first month to remember what? Remember that God delivered you out of Egypt. That's what the Passover was. You see the, the beauty of, the, of substitution there? And so now imagine this. Let's go back to our text. Here is Mary Joseph and Jesus, young, young child, young man Jesus in Jerusalem. Now historians will tell you that, listen, at Passover week, which is the, the main feast, by the way, which most Jews would come to to begin with, Jerusalem would swell to an immense amount of numbers. You would have Jews coming from, from not just Palestine itself, but they'd be coming south from Egypt and Africa, or from, 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 from Asia Minor. They would be coming from everywhere. And the numbers in Jerusalem would swell to, to, to hundreds of thousands. And they would all be looking for a lamb that they could partake with their family. And on that day, could you imagine at the temple how many lambs were slain? How many lambs died? And imagine young man Jesus sitting there watching this as the blood of those lambs would be poured upon the altar, and all that blood would run down on the ground, and would even trickle down to the back of the temple, and even drip down the mountain into the brook of Kidron. Some estimates are, would say that almost 250,000 lambs would die at a Passover. And the brook of Kidron would be stained red. And here is Jesus looking upon this, and seeing the cost of sin. And knowing he is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. All this pointed to him. All this was going to be laid on his shoulders, on him. He understood who he was. He understood his purpose. Could you imagine what he thought? 
the hustle and bustle, people just doing this out of, out of tradition. And the thought of the cost of their sin. And so Jesus and his family celebrated that Passover. Now, one of the interesting traditions in Passover, according to Jewish tradition, the oldest child at Passover dinner is supposed to ask his father, Father, why is this night special or different from any other night? And it would give Joseph the ability to tell him the story. So much can be said, but I have to move on. Anyhow, the Passover was done. They stayed for the the, the next feast, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they were there eight days. They traveled there. They were there eight days and said the caravan was getting ready to go. And they left. And Jesus wasn't with them. Now, before we start casting dispersions upon Joseph and Mary, First of all, let us recognize that the, the culture and, and, and the environment that they were in, listen, the children were together, they were with family. It, it, it wasn't a strange thing not to see your kid for a while. And so he thought he was the Karen, number one. Number two, it was Jesus. Jesus, I imagine, was the, the best child anyone could ever imagine. Loving, thoughtful, selfless. He was always where he was supposed to be. Why would Mary and Joseph think he's not with the caravan? He knows, but he wasn't with the caravan. And so it's no strange thing that they walked an entire day, probably 20 miles, before they said, okay, we need to find Jesus. And it says that they, once the caravan stopped and they, 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 they kind of found their family, hey, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? No, no. Jesus, anybody? Jesus? No. They realized they left them. So they traveled the day there, realized he was he was not there, probably spent the night there because traveling at night was not safe. Traveled back a day to Jerusalem, getting there at night, and probably looked for him the third day. That's why it says, after three days. After three days. When where did they find Jesus? Where did they find him? Now, it's an interesting scene. It, it, I, you imagine Joseph and Mary frantically going to relatives in, in, in Jerusalem, relatives in the area. Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? And, and wondering and looking and looking. And when they finally got to eat, I imagine even the temple wasn't easy. The temple was probably still crowded. It, you know, historians would say, listen, at, at this major feast of power, everybody would come. So all the teachers of the law who, who were scattered abroad, all the area, would come to Jerusalem and they would linger and they would, they would talk to each other. They would, they, would, they would bounce ideas off of each other. It was a great time for these teachers of the law to get together. And so it's not like the temple was empty. The temple was probably filled with a bunch of rabbis and, and priests and Levites and teachers and scribes. And they were looking for him in the temple and they could not find him. Eventually, there's a crowd. And there's a boy at the center of the crowd. And it's Jesus. 
You know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Here is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords sitting and listening to men. He didn't sit there and say, you guys don't know what you're talking about. But he listened to them. And he asked them questions. I, I, you know, so first thing you say, why didn't they ask, whose kid is this? Where, where's your parents? What, what, what are you doing here? Three days he was in Jerusalem by himself. Not one of them thought to ask those questions. All they were were amazed. They were astonished by his wisdom and knowledge. Oh, to be a fly on the wall, wouldn't be. To hear these, these men who, who transcribes the Old Testament day by day. If anybody knows the Old Testament, there's these men. And here's this 12-year-old boy asking questions that astound them. Not being precocious, but being kind and humble. They were astonished. And Mary and Joseph find him in the crowd. And it says that they were astonished. I found that extremely interesting. They were astonished. I don't think they were astonished at the fact that he could hold a conversation with that group of people. They lived with Jesus. They saw that child grow up. They saw his kindness. They saw his heart. They saw his wisdom. They, that, that, that's not what astonished them, I don't think. I think what astonished them was the fact that here is this 12-year-old boy, three days separated with his parents. Didn't have a worry in the world. Didn't walk around and say, have you seen my mommy? Have you seen my daddy? Can you help me, please? Mary and Joseph must be thinking, where did he sleep? Where did he eat? Didn't even bother Jesus. Didn't even bother. And here he is, completely normal. Completely safe. In the temple. Talking to the teachers of the day. And Mary, in her frustration, in her, in her anxiety, walks up to Jesus and says to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. We're not going to cast stones at Mary. What parent wouldn't worry? What parent wouldn't be anxious? You know, the reason that Jesus lingered was a lesson not just for the teachers who were around him, but were to remind Mary of the truth she already knew. Yes, Jesus was her child, but he wasn't just any child. Look at his response. His response is, is really what I'm going to end with. And it, it, everything pivots upon his response. He says, Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Why do you seek me? He says. 
Other, other translations would render that, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I like that. I like that for two reasons. Number one, the context in which he was in. He was in the temple. He was in his father's house. And secondly, it portrayed a truth to everyone in that area. Now, could you imagine the, the scribes and the Pharisees as they, they commune with this child, and this child keeps asking him questions that, that are just so profound that they're astonished, and they're saying, who is this kid? Who is his father? Who taught him the law? Who... Who sat there and taught this kid? This kid's amazing. Who is this kid's father? And here comes his parents. Why have you done this, Jesus? And he says, why do you look for me? Don't you know that I must be in my father's house? Listen, that phrase proclaims the truth that is revolutionary to anybody who was in that room. Listen, Moses was a great man of faith, a humble man of faith, and the Lord used him for many wonderful things. He was the one who, who, who through the, the Lord through him, instituted the tabernacle and, and the, the, the whole system of it, and, and where God would dwell with men. And Moses would never say, that's my father's house. David had such a desire to build the Lord a temple, a place where he would dwell. David never said, <coughs> That's my father's house. Why? <coughs> Nobody called Jehovah their father. For to call Jehovah your father is to make yourself equal with the father. Now let me explain that real quick. Nowadays we say, I am Jamel and my sons are, da- are Aiden, Dalif, and Josiah. Right? And, and, and son has to do with a generational thing. But when we're talking about a scripture, when we're talking about sonship, we're talking about a place and position. Let me illustrate that for you real quick. When we read about Abraham, and it says that Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and so forth. Now, here's the first, first illustration. Did Abraham more than, have more than one son? Yes. Did he have one older than Isaac? Yes. So why is Isaac special? Why aren't the other sons, he had Ishmael, and then he had more kids after the fact. Why aren't any of them important? Well, because Isaac was the son of privilege. All the inheritance went to Isaac. The position went to Isaac. There was Abraham, and then there was Isaac. Do you see that? Sonship has not to do with generation, but it has to do with position. And so Isaac and Abraham are in the same place, in the same place of promise. Does that make sense? And so here, when Jesus said, I must be in my father's house, he's proclaiming to everyone in that temple that he and the father are one. Are one. It is in that truth that Christianity lives and survives. 
at this, at the age of 12 years old, here is the young boy Messiah saying, I am the son of God. I am God in the flesh. Mary didn't understand it. She didn't understand it. And I imagine a lot of people there didn't quite see it either. But here from his own mouth, Jesus is testifying to the reader, to you and I, that he is the Son of God. Praise be his name. Let us us pray. Our Heavenly God and Father, Lord, we... Lord, we thank you for the truth that is in your scripture, Lord. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that that we gather here unto the name of Christ, not a fairy tale, not a myth, not a folklore, not tradition, Lord, but we live, we gather together upon a living Savior, one who sits at the right hand of God, waiting that his enemies would be made a footstool, Lord. Lord, we ask that the truth of your incarnation, Lord, would be vivid in our hearts. Just as as Luke sat down to pen these words, that we may know for certain that Jesus is the Son of God. Lord, we thank you for the Lamb of God who came to forgive the sins of the world. Lord, Lord we ask your, that you bless this word to our hearts this morning, Lord, and Let us walk away with Christ renewed in our hearts and minds. I ask all these things, Son's precious name, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.